Okay, if you haven't brought a Bible with you, that's obviously no concern. You can look on the screen uh, on the wall back there uh, to follow the passage that we're looking at. And in recent times when I've been preaching, we've been looking at uh, Timothy, letter of 1 Timothy, and in particular chapter 3 more recently, focusing very much on leadership in the church. And so I'm going to read the same passage we've looked at a couple of times, and we're going to focus in particular on verses 6 and 7. But as a reminder, I'll read from verse 1. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. And as we've been looking at this passage before now, uh, we focused initially on, uh, in terms of looking at an overseer, we focused on, well, what does an overseer do? And we looked at how the leaders of the church are there to, uh, to shepherd the sheep, to shepherd the church, which involves uh, guarding and protecting. Uh, it also involves uh, governing and guiding, which implies leading into uh, the right paths and the ways uh, to go. We focused on that and we then considered, well, who are they to be or what are they to be like? And as we've gone through this passage, much of it is to do with these different character traits that need to be in evidence for someone to, be, uh, to become an overseer. Uh, and that's where we've we focused, that's where the passage focuses, right down onto, onto character, character. And as we look at verse 6 and 7, I think, well, it, it continues in the same vein. There are different necessary traits. He, he must not be a recent convert, we find out, and the reasons for that. And he must also have a good reputation with outsiders. It needs to be evident, very clearly evidenced, that here's a man who is uh, a godly believer uh, and is following uh, Jesus. But as we get to the end of this part, there's a slight twist in the tale. I don't know if you noticed, but in those two verses at the end, 6 and 7, there are two references to the devil. Uh, there's the reference to falling under the same judgment as the devil, and then also kind of falling into a trap that he lays for leaders. It's particularly bringing focus on the whole matter of spiritual warfare. There is a spiritual conflict and a spiritual battle that we are a part of, and the reason for focusing in on character and making that such the big deal is there'll be, uh, there'll be testings, there'll be challenges in this uh, area. The devil would love to discredit the church and the message that she's been given in the gospel, and one particular strategy will be to go for leaders. And one particular strategy in going for leaders will be to attack their uh, character, to try to 
uh, undermine it, to target it. The, the devil's uh, goal is to create confusion and compromise. And that's particularly necessary then as we, we look at what it means to be uh, an overseer in the church. And for, for, for some of you guys in the room, that may be a calling that God brings in the future to be uh, an elder, to be an overseer, uh, shepherding uh, a local church. Pay attention. Also pay attention because of God's call for you to be leading maybe in other spheres of life. There's a primary application here for leading in the church, but this is also for bearing in mind when it comes to leading in other ways, leading in family, leading in family life, or leading in the workplace, um, in what you're doing there. Uh, God wants godly believers bringing godly influence in, uh, in all these different uh, places and spaces who are, who are clear on the gospel. We do need to be clear on what the dangers are. We need to be clear on what the enemy's strategies are. And then we need to be clear on the gospel and how the gospel helps us to overcome and helps us to win those challenges and win those battles that come to us in the whole area of our character. Character. I wonder what springs to mind when you hear the phrase uh, spiritual attack. Uh, you, you might think of crazy circumstances unfolding uh, in life. Really unusual um, things going on. And perhaps that is to be included in how we think of it, but we mustn't miss out on just the daily uh, journey of living a godly life and how the enemy seeks to target character. So we're going to look at these, uh, these two dangers, these two traps, and then we're going to consider uh, how the gospel helps us. The, the first one, conceit. Uh, the reason why... Uh, an overseer must not be a recent convert, we're told here, is that he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. The same judgment as the devil is about conceit and pride. The word itself is, is kind of suggesting almost someone who's got their head in the clouds, misty clouds, they can't actually see clearly. Leadership in God's church and elsewhere can be heady stuff. It, goes, it can go to our heads. Uh, we can become focused uh, on ourselves. We can become preoccupied with our own sense of importance uh, or superiority. We can become puffed up, full of ourselves. And when that happens, actually our, our vision, our, our judgment is... Compromise. We might not realize we're not seeing clearly, but where, where there's pride in the mix, we're heading into the same uh, uh, judgment that the devil himself stumbled into because he was in a high position, an angel in heaven, but became very focused on his, his own importance, and that's what he chose. You can read passages in the Old Testament that sometimes just hint at what happened in heaven when Satan fell. Leadership can be heady stuff. It can go to our heads. Even in moments of success, this can happen. Can you remember 
when Jesus sent out 72 of his disciples with authority to go and proclaim the kingdom and see people released uh, from uh, demons and evil spirits, and they came back to Jesus. And they said, even, even the demons submit to us in your name. They were excited. They had stories to tell. They had kind of uh, godly and anointed success. They'd seen the kingdom come into people's lives. And so they come back to Jesus, eager to share what they've experienced, eager to share what they've done and what they've seen. And Jesus says, yes, I saw Satan fall from heaven. And he goes on to say, but don't rejoice that the demons submit to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Sometimes a test is right there. It's in the moment of success. It's in the moment of, it's in the moment of anointing that a test comes. What are you going to focus on? You're going to focus on what you achieved? You're going to focus on this new position that you've come into? You're going to focus on Jesus. You're going to focus on your, your real identity and, and how you've been rescued from sin. Oh, see, that humbles. That can be the uncomfortable place. But that's where we're called uh, to stand. Uh, Paul himself can write about great revelations that he had, visions, dreams, understanding that he'd received from God and from his word. And he said, actually, in 2 Corinthians 12, he could say, to keep me from becoming conceited, in view of these amazing revelations... He was recognizing that it was possible for him to, be, to become puffed up and distracted by the wonder and the weight of what he'd experienced and that that could cause him to become conceited, proud in his experience, proud in his understanding, proud in his, under, in his revelations and, and, and then start just to look down on people. To, to become elevated in his own thinking and, and then to look down on others. And this can happen... In the church, um, in 1 Peter chapter 5, we could turn there briefly, uh, Peter is writing, and he actually, in 1, 1 Peter 5, it begins with him speaking to elders. Um, you know, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder. He goes on to say in, in verse 3, in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 3, when speaking to these overseers, he tells them, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. It's possible, elders and overseers, to begin to lord it over the people that you've been sent to shepherd. It's interesting, though, that he also goes on to then speak to, to young men. 1 Peter chapter 5, still, and verse 5, young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. This is what can happen. Those in authority or those in a position of leadership or those who are a bit older can look down uh, and start to lord it over people who are younger or under their care. And actually those who are younger uh, can look down on those in positions of responsibility and authority and think, oh, one, one group might just be complaining of the youth of today and they really need to listen and buck up their ideas, and whilst the youth of the day might be looking up at the old timers and saying, well, you just need to move on. Uh, I understand more than you do. Who are you to speak into my life? And, and this can be going on in the life of the church. And you say, no, clothe yourself with, with humility towards one another. I can remember as a younger man, 
Before becoming a parent, I had it nailed. I, I had amazing revelation what it means to be a parent before I actually became one. And uh, sometimes, every now and again, I'd look around, other people, families, elsewhere. And think, yeah, I, I understand the mistakes they're making. I'm sure it's tough, but probably they need to, need to listen to my advice. Now, I wasn't really saying that out loud. It's just a, a, a way in which a subtle mindset can develop, where before actually experiencing something, you, you think you've got all the answers. Um, and then when you actually feel the weight of this, this particular responsibility, you realise, what was I thinking? I actually need to humbly walk this out myself and learn for real what's going on uh, for other parents too. So that's going to happen. Conceit can puff us up. And the gospel, what it does is it rescues us from that pride. We look at this second, or the, the trap that's mentioned here uh, as well in verse uh, seven, and speaking of overseers, he says he must also have a good reputation with outsiders. Why? So that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Look, when we don't deal with pride, when we don't deal with uh, conceit, when we don't humble ourselves, we're choosing to follow in Satan's footsteps and we will tumble into judgment. And here, if, we, uh, if we're not clear on the gospel, if it's become a bit fuzzy and unfocused to us, then what can also happen is we stumble into the trap that he has deliberately laid. He would like nothing more than to encourage believers into ungodly compromise and leading a, a double life. And if there is any confusion about the gospel, if we've not... Be- become focused, it's very likely that's what's going to happen. We will be clouded by our own pride and we will get dragged away or enticed into compromise and disgrace. Uh, in our family, in our car, even we still listen to CDs, uh, which is like vinyl when I was growing up. But uh, at some point we might move on from that form. But we've got one in particular and I've actually quoted this one before. There's an Australian guy called Colin Buchanan um, who's written some kids' worship songs and uh, extra prize for remembering the song that I've sung a long time ago of, of Colin's. But here's another one. It's called The Crocodile Song. Would you like to know how The Crocodile Song goes? Yeah. Yeah. I tried to get away with it this morning just saying the lyrics and everyone's like, no, you've got to sing it. You've got to sing it. Oh, I can't remember. I'm really sure I can't remember. Um, so even now, I've got to try and get into it. Let's just try and remember. Okay, it goes like this. Sin is like a great big crocodile. Sin is a dangerous trap. Sin can creep up like a crocodile. All of a sudden, snap. So how do we walk? How do we walk? Sorry, kids. Okay, thank you. I'll take a bow. Um, there's a, that's true. Sin is a crocodile. Sin is a dangerous, vicious beast that wants to get you. So if we stray close to it, we're putting ourselves in dangerous territory. And the, the, the song goes on to describe how the, this guy, who's, who's, who's just a bit too casual, he's staying beside the water, he's looking out over the, the river, and he sees what looks like a log, and he thinks, it's fine, but actually that log is moving, and that log has teeth, 
that long's coming to get him. And he's not taking sensible steps to remove himself from the situation. There's this girl, and she's far wiser, and, uh, and she's noticed, and she's, she's making far more deliberate effort to get away from the crocodile. And sometimes if we're not clear on the gospel, and sometimes if we're in a position where we're allowing ourselves to get enticed, we start to believe it's okay to lead this double life. I'll do a bit of spiritual, I'll do some spiritual things, and sometimes I'll also just entertain uh, ungodly uh, ideas. And uh, elsewhere, in one of the le- I think in both letters that he writes to Timothy, uh, Paul says, Timothy, flee! Flee from the evil desires of youth. Get out of there. Don't try and look cool. Don't try and accommodate. Don't pretend that you can handle it. Don't put yourself in harm's way. There's a crocodile and it wants to snap you up for lunch. So get out of there. But he doesn't just say flee. See, sometimes we can think fleeing sin, oh, just quickly get away. But I'm still kind of hanging around. And maybe I'm even like reading up on crocodiles. How, how fast can a crocodile run? How fast do I have to be able to run just to stay one step ahead? Uh, when I was with Blessan, we were, we were coming back from a trip to India, and we, we, had a couple, we had a few hours to spare in Dubai. That's quite different from Delhi, but anyway. Um, and in Dubai, there's this lovely mall, and in the mall is like a massive aquarium. And it's amazing. We went, we went through this aquarium, and uh, we saw two crocodiles and became very grateful for the kind of sheet glass that was between us uh, because we, uh, we were there at feeding time. And that helped me to learn what was obvious already from books, if you choose to read, um, is they are vicious. They just got this big stick and just, well, I won't describe it in detail. They dangled something that the crocodile might find tasty, uh, but kind of like took it out of reach to get this kind of six-meter monster to really, like, come on up out of the water and grab it. You think, wow, that is powerful. And sometimes with sin, we can just think it's just this little thing. It's very reasonable. No, it wants to grab you, and it wants to dominate your life. It wants to control you. And there was a time when it did. Before we came to Christ, sin was our master. Sin would say something and we were captive to it. We were grabbed by it. If we're not clear on the gospel, we can just be kind of just dallying with temptation, not kind of removing us. But notice that it's not just fleeing, it's, Paul says, no, flee, but also pursue. Pursue righteousness, pursue peace. We might say, let's pursue Jesus. The song goes on. Only Jesus wins forgiveness. Gotta stay close to him. Only he can set us free from mean old crocodile sin. So what what is this about? It's about staying close to Jesus. Recognizing he saved you for purpose. He saved you on purpose. And he has a plan. And that plan is to lead us out from sin and into uh, godliness and into his plans and purposes. We've got to flee. Let's do that by pursuing, by pursuing him. But how do we do that? How do we flee and pursue? Because sometimes it can feel like walking a tightrope through life, where we, we are wanting to go God's way, and we're wanting to walk in God's way, 
And we're aware we could go, whoa, whoa, we could stumble over into pride. It's easy to do that. We could stumble over into some other ungodly compromise. It's easy to do that. It's, quite, it's a tight line. And, and it's not always easy to keep going. How, how do we do it, therefore? And sometimes we, we can just think, well, it's just about rolling up my sleeves a bit further, trying a bit harder, coming up with some new plans and ideas for how I'm going to spend my day and what time I'm going to wake up in the morning and how much of the Bible I'm going to try and read and how I'm going to pray. And, oh, I've got everything nailed down. I've got this beautiful plan. But it's like making, I don't know, like it's February now, isn't it? January has suddenly disappeared. But uh, you know, did you go for January New Year resolutions? Is it, is it still working? Sometimes we just think the solution is me, my effort, and my plan. We try and stay balanced. But, oh, I've come down again. And uh, you know, picture the scene. You, you know, sometimes you see this in botanical gardens. Someone's kind of attached a cord to two trees and tightened it up so they can practice their walking. Or sometimes you've seen like, somebody do it at a circus way up high. And there's actually a net. You know, if they do fall, there's a net. And sometimes in the gospel, we, we, we kind of get to a certain point in our life, in our daily walk, and we've stumbled and we think, oh, praise the Lord. Isn't this wonder- His grace is wonderful, isn't it? We're caught by a net. And I can say to the Lord, Father, I'm confessing my sin. Forgive me. What I've just done, what I've just said, what I've just thought, whatever it might have been, I know was ungodly, and I'm going to confess it to you. Father, thank you for Jesus. Please forgive me in light of what he's done for me. He's, he's made himself the atoning sacrifice for my sin. Cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And you know what? He does completely. And then we can get back up. We get back up onto the tightrope. I'm going to try again this time. And we fall off. And oh, the net's still there. And that's, oh, uh, and we think, and almost we can just think that the Christian life is doing that. Thank you for your grace. You've picked me up again. I'm going to get back on. I've stumbled again. Right. Oh, wonderful grace, isn't it? He's restored me. Oh, would you believe it? It's happened again. Oh, God, you're great. It's amazing. Look, you've restored me again. Look, God saved us not so that we learn how to fall off well, but so that we learn, I, I, I want to get to the other side. That's what, that's what this is about. I want to get to the other side. No, so what we need, we need more than just like our own arms. We need more than just a good idea and a resolution and my willpower to try and do things better. What we need is the gospel. What we need is to fix our gaze on it, to really hold it. So have you been getting that when you've been listening to Richard preach through uh, the faith in Hebrews 11? Even last week about Moses. How was it? that Moses said no to the, to the pleasures of sin. If you look at it, there's, it looks like it offers pleasure. How did he say no to that? He was captivated by a bigger vision of something even more amazing. He wasn't just trying to flee from temptation. He's trying to live for God, and he'd seen something. God had revealed to him to something, something much bigger, a massive picture. Are you seeing that? What's the picture that has most captivated you? What are we living for? Just day to day trying to kind of do this, that and the other and not stumble? Or living for him and his gospel? And so what you need when you're kind of coming out to to walk on this tightrope is this big long pole to hold on to. What do we need? We need to be holding on to truth and and focused on it. And that steadies us. It's still a tightrope in some respects. 
We're walking in a world that wants us to sin. There's an enemy who wants us to be tempted or discouraged and give up. So we've got the gospel, and it helps us to remember. Imagine he's got kind of this weight on either side. See, we're called to look back. We're called to look over here and remember. This is what we've been doing. We've been worshipping. We're captivated by what happened at the cross. We look back. We say, look, the grace of God appeared in Jesus, and he died on the cross. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Endured crucifixion. And when we consider this, we see the absolute awfulness of sin. That's what was necessary to save me from everything ungodly I've ever done and ever thought. So that I can say by faith, when he died, I died. And I I was then, like he was raised a new life, I was raised a new creation. Sin is no longer my boss. Sin doesn't command me. It can still try to get me off track, tempt me away. But it's not in control. I'm not obliged to it anymore. Why? Because, because of this wonderful gospel of grace. And whilst focusing on the, the wonderful grace that has appeared, we're focusing on the glory that is to come. And so much, again, of our worship is just look, looking at a God right now who's seated on a throne. And just thinking about and savouring the truth of the glory that will be revealed. Do you think about it? Do you think about that big picture? When we break bread, we're looking back and we're saying, oh, Jesus, thank you for your grace. Look at what you've done. Look at what he's done for us. And we're proclaiming something until we see his glory. He's coming on the clouds. He's going to come again in awesome glory. And at that point, we will go to be with him and we'll be like him. And for eternity, we will enjoy his presence without sin, with a new body that isn't subject to temptation like the old one is. We're living for that heavenly day. And we get a taste of it now. We'll be there in its fullness with Jesus, with people from every tongue, tribe and nation before the throne. It's like when you come to the cross, it's kneeling room only. It humbles us. And we go to glory. I think all the angels and the, and, and, and the elders around the throne. Kneeling room only. No one else is getting any credit here. Now we hold on to those and we get our balance. And then here and now we live life to honour him and glorify him. And it's not always straightforward, but we're looking to serve him. Sometimes we can think that serving God is that extra thing I try and do when I've still got energy and all the rest of the day's business is taken care of. So maybe serving God is about being part of a team that's serving in the life of the church or some other activity. We just think in terms of activity. Or rather, it's just, no, right in the here and now, self-control, gentleness, kindness, faithfulness. I'll tell you something interesting as we close. Uh, I was chatting to someone recently and... She was just saying how a while ago she was, she was grieving because her father passed away. And the good, well, <clears throat> it wasn't complicated. He was a believer. She's a believer. Knows where, she's, know where he's going. 
live right into his 90s. So, uh, good grief, in other words. Better than some of the situations that can develop. Nevertheless, painful. She was at work. I'd taken time to, to deal with it. Um, lots practically that needed to be done, as well as her own pain. People in the workplace knew that she was a believer, so she's been open about that. Maybe it's not littered kind of every conversation, but she was, she'd been open. And then some colleagues came to her and said, we've been noticing how you have dealt with this situation, and it's different. Can we come round to your house and ask you some questions about your faith? And isn't just, if you like, ordinary life with its ups and downs, living for God. But actually, that's what the world needs to see. The world needs to see a people whose lives are different and match with this wonderful message that then creates opportunity to draw people in, into the same faith. You see, that's not just doing something extra. Oh, I'll, I'll, I've got to do more. I've got to do more. No, I've just got to live for God. And I've got to keep my eyes fixed on him. And his good news. Amen.